and good morning. We're in Exodus 16 today. <clears throat> Which is still not halfway through Exodus. So Exodus 16, we'll start reading in verse 1. Exodus 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. Here you have Moses there and Aaron. And according to later in Exodus 38, it, there's 603,550 men plus their women and children, people under the age of 20, and they're complaining to Moses and Aaron about this. And so if you just think about it, if you have two, Moses and Aaron, and you're leading, and then you have 600,000 men who are not pleased with the situation. I, I've, I put a little thought into this uh, for several at directions here. Uh, one is that we have this, this same assembly that is complaining right now, out of them, there's only two of those 603,000 men that are actually going to make it into the promised land. And so we have this whole host of people who has just seen the Red Sea crossing, who's just seen the, the bitter waters made sweet there at Marah, who has seen the provision of God so far, they're complaining again now, and they will complain. And, uh, you know, Bob just read that scripture from where he said, well, even if someone rises from the dead, they're not going to believe. And so there is just this reality that sometimes we think, well, if we could only have this or only have that, but there is, there is, a, there is something in our heart. And when God, the creator, bumps into us and we resist him, and we resist him and we resist him again and again, it, he can do all kinds of things and it will not cause us to soften because there needs to be something that softens our heart. We need a new heart. And so this is, as we look today, in my Bible, the whole of Exodus 16 just has the heading bread from heaven because it talks about the manna. But if you think about who is about to receive bread from heaven, it's well, there's 603,548 people here who are going to receive, uh, men, adult men, who are going to receive bread from heaven who are not going to enter the promised land. There's two men here who are the right age who are going to enter into the promised land. And so God's mercy to us and his continual reaching out to us is, is phenomenal when you, when you see this. And so... As we said last week, like if you run out of water, that's pretty desperate. And I, I understand it when you think, oh, why, 
what shall we drink? Like that's, that's, a, that's a big deal if you run out of water, if you've ever been on a hike or something and you ran out of water. It's a big deal. You really need water. And so I understand the complaint. I also get it if you're thinking, well, what are we going to eat? Like when you get in the midst of your hunger pangs, that can be pretty bad too. And so I can see this. The, I can see the complaint. They're on this journey. They don't understand it. Um, but just to understand the magnitude of it, that there's, you've got Aaron and Moses, and then you've got 600,000 men, plus everyone under the age of 20, plus the women and everything. They, and so, so in verse 3 again, uh, 16 verse 3, the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so what they're basically wishing for is they, they just wish they could have stayed in Egypt and died there. Why come out here? So they're not, they don't have the long-term vision right now. They don't have a vision of what God is about to do or what God could do. And their, their current distress, their present hunger is making it very, very difficult to get a big picture of what God might be trying to do. And it is true that in our lives, sometimes we'll have a pain, we'll have something that is hurting us that will keep us from even thinking of what God might be doing in the larger picture. And so we don't want to doubt the goodness of God just because of a momentary affliction. Now, of course, it doesn't seem like a momentary affliction because we don't know what the end outcome is yet. And so it doesn't, yet, it doesn't seem momentary. It seems all-consuming. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And so we see that there is a test that God is, he's wanting to know, will they walk with me? Will they obey? Will they know me? Will they, who's going to understand that I'm doing something bigger than just this day? So he says, there's going to be a test, but I'm, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. Then in verse five, it shall be on the sixth day that it, they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Verse six, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So you think of Moses and Aaron, the two men, they're saying, look, you're not complaining. It's not us. It's God. We are listening to the Lord. We're responding in faith. He has brought us safely this far. If you could just remember what has already happened so far in the journey and, and then fix your trust and faith and hope in the Lord, not in us. Don't complain against us. We're not the ones who actually had the power to open the Red Sea. Verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, so when I read this, the, the picture I get is Aaron comes and gathers in all the congregation, and he's speaking to them. And then Moses is over here meeting with the Lord, and as they're meeting, they suddenly see that the pillar of, 
you know, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of the, the, the cloud by day, um, it is, it is um, you know, it's, it's active, it's alive. And so they're looking, they see it because it says they looked, that the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And so it's a, it is, it is actively happening. It's not just a, well, there's a cloud, but it's like it is, it is very obviously the glory of the Lord is in the cloud. And so Aaron has all the children of Israel. They're all gathered here, and they look off to the wilderness, and they see the glory of the Lord in the cloud. And, and Moses, and, and the Lord is speaking to Moses. And so verse 12, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And this is the heart of it. God wants to be known. He wants to know some, he wants to know every person and he wants to be known of them. And so this, this thing that he's been doing with the children of Israel and bringing them out of Egypt, he wants to be known by them. He wants them to know who he is. He wants them to know how he's responding to them, how they can respond to him. He wants them to, to be known by him. Verse 13, so it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. So God is providing for them. He brings bread, um, he brings quail in the evening for meat, and then in the next morning the dew comes down. And in verse 14 it says, when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by the omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had, lack, had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave it, any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. If they hadn't disobeyed the first time and tried to keep some overnight and had it rot and breed worms, they wouldn't have known that it would do that. And so it's a miracle now that it lasts on the Sabbath, whereas before they would have just been, okay, whatever. But because they had disobeyed once and seen what happened, and so now I'm imagining for those who had kept it the next, for the next day, and then now their leaders are telling them, yeah, now get double. On, on, they're like, oh no, we already did this once. We're not doing that, making that mistake again. Like our tent still stinks, you know? <laughs> and, and so, but no, they're, they got to see what would happen, and then they got to see the miracle that it actually, uh, in, in preparation for the Sabbath, it works. But then again, um, so let's keep reading. Verse uh, 25, then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna. What? It was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so they, they just basically called it what? Because it was the, the what is it? What is it? So manna. We call it manna, and we have this whole new meaning for what manna is. Um, but it still is that marvel of what, what is God doing when, when he does something like this, where it's just the bread from heaven. It's amazing. Then Moses said, this is verse 32, then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it. Lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So what's amazing to me is that they then take an omer of this manna and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant eventually. And it goes with them, and, it's in, and you can look at it. All those, those 40 years, they have, they have the manna, and then it, they don't have it, and there's a specific time when it says that the manna ceased coming. But this, in reading it, um, it becomes such a... When you think about how many people this has to feed, and so they, they go out and they gather it every morning, and when the sun comes out, it disappears. And then there's new manna for the next morning. And then it disappears. And, th and this happens six days of the week. But every seventh day, there is none. And then we go with this. There is this continual renewing of the bread from heaven. And the idea, with the, the idea of the actual thing that's happening here is that it's a miraculous provision from God. And it is a miraculous provision from God, but it is also a picture of something else, something, uh, not just something, but someone else, of Jesus himself. And so I just wanted to, to read over it, what we just did, but then to think in terms of God placed this picture here with the manna for us to look at, for the children of Israel to experience, and to realize that with the mercy of God that is new every morning, with the mercy of God that reaches out to us day after day, that, that just the fact that you can partake in the mercy of God does not always guarantee that your heart is actually turned toward the Father, that your heart is in the right place. And so in this case, we have so many of these people who they're eating the manna, they're seeing the provision of God, and yet later, when they're asked, you know, are we ready to take the land? They're like, no, we're not ready. They're giants in the land. They have already seen God split the Red Sea. They've seen God with the manna now. Uh, they've seen God sweeten the waters of Mara. They're going to eventually see water from the rock. They're going to see victory over the Amalekites. They're going to see a lot of life happening and God intervening on their behalf over and over and over again but they're still not ready to take that 
to go where God, to, to walk by faith and to fully inherit what God has for them. And so different people have looked at this in different ways and made it either be an issue of salvation or to be an issue of living in a fuller victory of the Christian life. And I think there's room for both of these pictures to be here between the Red Sea and, and the Promised Land. But I think one of the places where I land with it quite a bit is that when God rescues us, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, when God rescues us from something, he is re- he's, he's also saving us to something. So he's not just saving us from the world, but he's wanting to save us to a life with him. And so you've met those believers who seemingly are always struggling, who seemingly are just always having something happen. It's always sad. And, and this is something that I think is necessary for us to talk about and think about is because there is an appetite inside of me for the things of the world. So if you think of Egypt and the flesh pots of Egypt and the children of Israel with the flesh pots of Egypt and they are loving the food and now they're brought out to here and they're, 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 they're needing more food. And as they're needing the food and they're, they're hungry, they are remembering the things that they used to eat on a regular basis back there. And so in my own life, there are things that I used to do, that I used to participate in. There are things that I did that were not righteous or holy, but I did them and then I repented, turned to God, I'm walking with him. And as a believer, sometimes I still long for those things. My, the, my flesh still wants the old things. And this is an important thing for us as believers to talk about, is there were things that you did in your past, things that you could do before you became a Christian that you might still long for now, things that your heart desires, things that your fleshly appetites are still strong on and want, but you want to walk with God now, and so the two things are at war with each other. And so we're talking about appetites here because it's, it's literally about food. It's manna. It's, it's the food that they're eating every day. And it has to do with their appetites, but it shows who they are. It shows their faith walk on the inside. And so what can happen to a believer is, yes, you're saved and you're brought out of Egypt and you walk through the, 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 the Red Seas open and you're saved out of there and you're brought out here but you don't enter into the promised land. And so you're still longing for the things back there, but you're not willing to do what it takes to actually go and eat the things that God has intended for you. So God has intended for you the land flowing with milk and honey, the grapes where there's two men carrying a bunch of grapes. Uh, on, you know, some of the things that they describe in here, the amount of food that was over there, everything that God had provided for them, but they're in the desert. And right now they're in the desert because God is preparing them to go there. But in a little bit, they're going to get stuck in the desert because they're not willing to take that next step. And so this is important for us to think about because I think there are, there are areas in my life I know that it took me a very, very long time to even be willing to say, you know what? I don't want to ever go back to that worldly, fleshly pleasure. I want to only pursue what is the bread from heaven. I only want to pursue God in this. And it's possible that there are things in the past, things 
in your past that you're looking at going, oh, if I could just have that again and not have the guilt that comes with it. I would love this if I could just have it again and taste it again. And yet God is saying, I have something better for you in the promised land. I am going to provide for you. I'm going to give you new mercy every day. I'm going to give you mercy over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to give you this new mercy. And I'm going to provide for you everything you need. I'm going to take away your old heart of, of, as the prophet said, the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In our language, you might say, well, I'm going to take away my unregenerate heart and give me a new heart. I'll be, all things pass away. Behold, all things become new. This is what I'm going to do for you. You're going to begin to long for the springs of water from the promised land. You're going to understand that there is something better that is yet to come. You haven't crossed the Jordan yet. But just based on the fact that God pulled you out of Egypt and he's brought you here and he's showing you what he can do on a daily basis with the manna. He's showing you what he can do with taking the the bitter water and turning them sweet. Uh, Later when they strike the rock and when he speaks to the rock, well, he should speak to the rock. When When God shows them these things, God is making a promise to his people that there is something better coming. And if they could only see this and begin to long for the flavor of those springs of living water that are on the other side in the land of promise, if they could begin to hunger and have an appetite for the food that they will eat when they get into the promised land. But instead, they get stuck thinking, do you remember what we used to do? Do you remember that? Like we, that was fun. I liked that. That fulfilled my appetites. I'd rather go back. Why are we here and lose complete track of what God is doing? And so this is important for us because I think this can happen to us as believers. And this is what I was mentioning earlier. Sometimes you meet someone who seems that they were always and only suffering and struggling. And it seems that they never make it past the point of being able to say, wow, thank you, Lord, for something good because they're only remembering how things used to be or they're only seeing all the problems that they're having. And so there is what we sometimes call a, 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 full, a more full Christian life or a, a victorious Christian living where you, we can walk in complete victory, in wholeness, and we're not limping our way in the kingdom, but we're actually living, rejoicing, day by day, not only in what God is doing now, but in what he is going to do. We're rejoicing in one day being with him. And so as I think about all of this, I wanted to turn over to um, John chapter six and also read from there where we hear some more about the bread from heaven. John chapter six. So John six twenty-two. this is in the beginning of chapter six, they, there was a feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee. And now we're in verse 22. It says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So here's this to me. 
there's a bunch of people. They're seeing what happened. The disciples left. They didn't see Jesus leave, but they're thinking, and they're, they're making the connection. Then they're following, a whole bunch of people following, and they come looking for Jesus. They find him. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And instead of saying, um, I explaining anything to them or even asking them what they need, he, he says, most assuredly, this is verse 26, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so he's, he's literally telling them the only reason you put all this work in is because I fed you the other day. And when I, when I understand that that's what he's saying to them, it always feels just a little rude to me that he would just say that, but he's revealing something about them. He's saying, look, you're not following me because you saw the signs and you believe what God is doing. You ate the food. And for some of them, literally they're going, wow, if we had someone like this, do you know that we could feed our armies and go up against Rome? And we could just, we, all we'd have to do is take a loaf a day and he would just multiply it to our armies every day. And then if anyone got hurt, we could, he would just heal them we could just, we could really win. So there's got to be those that are looking at this from a political perspective saying, if Jesus came and always fed us and always healed us and he did all, that would be amazing. We could win. And so the, the, the group of people that are there that are being fed are not, I mean, that's one part of them. There's others. There's just so many thoughts that are happening. And, but a lot of them are thinking right now in this moment, bread. They're not thinking the bigger picture of what God is doing. And so Jesus is touching in right on that. And he says in verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the son of man will give you because God the father has set his seal on him. So he tells him, don't labor for the food which perishes. This is just food that perishes. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Talking about himself. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And they bring it up. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right. So they, some of the people that are speaking to Jesus have made a connection here. They remember the bread, the manna, and they're looking at Jesus feeding people there, the 5,000, and they're going, wait a minute, this is kind of like that. There's some similarities here. He is taking some food, but he's feeding all of us with it, and they're seeing this as bread from heaven. They're, they're making a connection. So this might not be the military crowd. This might be the other side of things going, wow, what is God doing? So I don't know who all is here, but there's a lot of people, and they're interacting with Jesus, but he's concerned that they're all only thinking about right now, right here. They're not thinking bigger picture or the kingdom picture. They're only thinking about themselves. So here, verse 32, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So they didn't say it, but Jesus says, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. Basically, it was God. Remember, God gave you the bread from heaven. But he says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives, his, and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And that's as far as we'll read. I, I just found it fascinating that we have the Jews again complaining when this is the, in Exodus, that is the story we're reading is complaint, 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 and, and yet provision and provision and provision. And it could be provision and then praise and then need and provision and praise and need and provision and praise instead of provision, need, complaint, provision, need, complaint. And so this is really a good place to stop and consider my own life and to say, well, how, how do I work? How do I relate to the Lord? Am I a complaint-based praying person or am I a praise-based? Like, where do my prayer, where does my prayer life stem from? When, when it gets so bad, do I finally come and say, Lord, it's bad. I really need help. Or am I able to see the goodness of God and to actually praise him in all of this? And so in thinking about it, that verse where it says, you know, we sat down by the, the pots in Egypt, the flesh pots of Egypt, I think is what the, um, King James calls it, which I think is fascinating to, to be a flesh pot because I'm literally talking about the flesh in regards to, to that appetite. Our appetite for the familiar earthly things can cause us to miss the true bread from heaven. And this is what was happening with all the different groups of people that were interacting with Jesus. Some of them were beginning to suspect that we're not just seeing miracles, we're not just seeing something, but there's something about Jesus himself, that he is the king of kings, that he is the eternal word. There's, people were beginning to suspect this, a few here and there, were believing him because they began to think, this is different, and it doesn't really matter what I want to do with him. I need to follow him. There were others that were with him going, wow, this is different. I wonder what I could do with this guy. If I could get him on my side, if I could get him to work with me, if I could get him to help me think of what we could accomplish. And that's not very different from where we are today in the church where we have different people coming with different ideas saying, well, if I could only get God to bless my business, if I could only get God to bless my work, if I could get God to bless me in this, to bless me in that, think of what I could accomplish. And then there's others who are coming in saying, I think that he's actually the creator of the world. And as such, I owe him something. I, he created me. I owe him my allegiance. I, and we begin to 
suspect that we need to kind of drop everything else and just follow him. And so the fact that he calls himself the bread from heaven means that there is something about him that can be consumed by us. But because he is the bread from heaven, it will be new every day. We will never deplete the bread from heaven. It will never be used up. It will be a perpetual, not just a perpetual refilling, but it will almost be like a perpetual novelty for us in that every time when we eat it, every time when we draw near to the bread from heaven, we're refreshed and it's good. I don't know if you've, well, if you've been a bachelor, you've run into this situation where you, where you cook the same food over and over and over again and only the same food. And after a while, you just get really sick of it and you want something different. And so, so <clears throat> I would, uh, you know, slowly I would grow my, what kind of food I would eat at my house. But it's been really nice being married and having someone else who can also think about food and not just having me coming up with the food. But we have a desire not just to be filled, not just to have the benefit of the food, but to actually have something that tastes good. And so this is the case with the bread from heaven, is that it actually can taste good time and time again, where it can be the same thing, the same mercy, the same kindness and compassion from God can taste good over and over and over again. And so that is, to me, part of what the, the 40 years in the wilderness of having manna over and over again, I think that was a huge thing for us to, to, see, uh, to see this pattern that God is merciful again and again and again. So that in Lamentations, when we see, when we see the complaint and then the, the, the trust saying, your mercies are new every morning, we understand it, that God is able to, be, to, do the, to do something new every day, and it can be the same thing. It can be the same new thing, but it is God doing it, and so it can completely work. However, this is, this is the spot where I want us to really think about our appetites and how we look back at the old things. I was looking at just to see what the early church fathers had written about this section, just out of curiosity. And John Cassian, he lived, um, it would have been late 300s into the 400s. And he, this is what he wrote. He said, although this manner of speaking first referred, and he's talking specifically from the uh, verse three, where they were like, if we could have just stayed in Egypt and died there, that would have been better. And so he said, although this manner of speaking first referred to that people, Nonetheless, we see it now daily fulfilled in our life and profession. For everyone who has first renounced this world and then returns to his former pursuits and his erstwhile desires proclaims that in deed and intention he is the same as they were, and he says, it was well with me in Egypt. And, and that phrase really stuck out because what he's saying is, is if we follow God, we turn away from the world, but then we, whether in our heart or by our actions, turn back to the old way of doing things, we're literally saying, it was well with me in Egypt. And yet when they were in Egypt, they were complaining because of the weight of the work and other things that were there. They knew the pain and the burden in Egypt, but now they're saying, oh, it was good for us. It was well for us in Egypt. And so you and I, 
there was a time when we were in the world or when we were being pestered by the things of the world and we, we can say, wow, this is heavy. I wish I could be relieved from this. And then we get relieved from it. We get rescued. But then we look back and we only remember the good part. And we can say, along with these Israelites, we can say it was well with me in Egypt. So reading on what John Cassian wrote, he said, I fear that there will be found as many such people as we read. There were multitudes of sinners in the time of Moses. For although 603,000 armed men were said to have left Egypt, no more than two of these entered the promised land. Hence, we must strive to take our models of virtue from the few and far between, since according to that figure of speech in the gospel, many are said to be called, but few are said to be chosen. Bodily renunciation and removal from Egypt, as it were, will be of no value to us, therefore, if we have been unable to obtain at the same time the renunciation of heart, which is more sublime and more beneficial. And I thought that was a good warning in saying, you know, we can physically be removed from Egypt, physically be removed from the world. We can stop doing some things. But if our heart longs for the things of the world, and this, I think, is where it came home to me in the last, even just in the last five years, I feel like I've really had to walk this out where I kept finding in my own life desires for things in the past. And so my mind would say, you know what? You don't have to actually go back there and do those things, but I will just reimagine them for you. I will think about the things of the world for you. And so it turns into a fantasy type thing where, where you are reliving something and you're going back and revisiting the world. On the outside, you're not. No one can tell that on the outside you want the flesh pots of Egypt. But on the inside, your mind is revisiting that. Now, whether I physically am returning to the flesh pots of Egypt or whether my mind is busy reimagining them, both of those things keep me from being able to fully appreciate and fully benefit from the very bread from heaven that God is providing for me. He is providing his mercy new for me day by day. He is giving me not only something to... To, to take care of me at this moment, something to eat now, but he's given me a promise of things that are to come. And as in all of this, whether I physically return to the flesh pots, which they would have been hard pressed to do because the Red Sea now lay between them and they would have had to walk a long ways to get back around over there. Um, whether I physically return, which by the way, is also for, true for us. We have a, it's a long journey back. Now, it's only, it seems like only a few short steps, but it's a long journey back to that place where we can go back to the world because once we have crossed that Red Sea with Jesus, once we have made that first step, we said, I want to leave, and we see what all had to happen, and we see this beginning of walking with him. This, isn't a, this is a phenomenal thing. We are walking with the Lord we're walking away from the world. We're walking through what seems like a barren land. One of the reasons it's a barren land is because in our mind, we're beginning to realize that all the things that we have valued, that we have really populated our life with, all of these things are wrong and we need to have a complete new worldview. And so we don't want the old dishes. We don't want the old bread. We don't want the old food. We want the new food. We want the good food from heaven. We want the, the and so in, if you think about, um, 
Well, maybe it would be easier just to read, like Galatians 5 has something of a list in it. So Galatians 5, verse 19. Galatians 5, 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. So when you read through that list, at first, it, 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 for a long time, I only read through it and it just felt somewhat repulsive and somewhat, I didn't know, I didn't fully get it. But when you read that list and you understand that with each of those things that is listed, there is some sort of pleasure or some sort of reward that is gained by the flesh. And so all of those things that happen have something to do with the flesh seeking its own. And so while some of us would say, well, I would never murder or whatever, yet we would go to the other pieces of it and we say, oh, well, maybe this would be interesting. And so I know that there are many, many people in the world and in the church who, to the, who have never quite gotten over the fact that because they are believers, they're supposed to be true and faithful to their spouse. And so we have so much unfaithfulness, so much adultery happening in the, in, in the church as it is in the world. And why is it? Because there is something of, that appeals to the flesh. And when we think of things appealing to the flesh, it's nicer if I can just keep it out at a distance and say, well, those people over there, they have a problem and they have never been able to deny the flesh and so they still have a desire for the things of the flesh, but I don't want to talk about myself. But when I truly come to the cross and I say, well, what is this? Who is this? Am I walking in the spirit, as Paul is talking about here, or am I walking in the flesh? That's when I discovered that sometimes, as especially as a believer, as a follower, uh, if you imagine yourself there in the camp, and so all the people are complaining, and inside your heart, you've been thinking, man, I wish I could get back to Egypt. But when they're complaining, you're just going to stand over here, and you're not going to say anything because you're, you're righteous. And yet on the inside, you've already been complaining yourself. You've wanted it. That's what happens in the church all the time, is we have some people who are openly sinning, some people who are openly longing for the things of this world, and then you have other people who will not say it out loud, but in their own minds, in their own hearts, they're rehearsing it, thinking about it, wishing, and maybe even going so far that they're secretly seeing what they can do, and there is secret sin involved. And so you have all of these things that are not from God, they're not good, but they have some sort of an attraction to our flesh. Our flesh wants them. And so this is when we're supposed to be walking in the in the spirit, not in the flesh. That means we're crucifying the flesh. That means the old things have got to be completely done away with, and it is painful at times. And so when I look to Jesus and I see that he is the bread from heaven, that he is designed to be consumed, that's the thing about bread. Bread is made to be eaten. Bread isn't made to Okay, in a few rare cases, you make bread to look at. But most of the time, bread is made to be eaten, right? 
It's not going to the county fair just to be looked at. It's made to be eaten. So you make bread all kinds of ways. And a lot of times, bread, uh, if you think of like a tortilla from Mexico, or all, they're all basically the same. It's some kind of a flour, some probably a little bit of oil and some water, and then it's baked in some way. And then you eat it with other things, and it becomes a filler food. And so Jesus is not just talking about this filler food, but he's talking about food and consumption in general, where you get strength from him. And so I am supposed to rise up day by day and receive my strength from him to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And yet my flesh is longing for something back there. Now there's going to come a time in my Christian life and it comes for each person. And sometimes it feels like we kind of cross the Jordan back and forth several times, but there comes that time when we say, you know what? I'm crossing the Jordan. I'm going and I'm going to walk where God has asked me to walk. I'm going to do what he's asked me to do. I'm going to face my enemies. I'm going to face the giants. I'm going to face the fears and I'm going to walk where he's asked me to walk. And I'm not going to be afraid of this anymore. And we walk in there and suddenly we're in the promised land. We still see the battles now, but now we see the provision of the promised land. And so for the children of Israel, once they got there, they were no longer getting the manna every day, but they were now getting the food, the fruit of the land. And they were not longing for Egypt in the same way. They now were taking their property there. Like they complain about and long for Egypt until they finally make it to the promised land. The promised land, they say, oh, which, which one's mine? And they divide it all out and everyone gets their inheritance and they go and they take over their inheritance. They start planting gardens, building things. But the people that went into the promised land, many of them were old enough to remember Egypt, but they were also, the way we would say it is that they, they were, they were, they were supposed, supposedly they were like children, right? Because they were too young to be uh, they were under the age of 20 at the time. And so when Jesus talks about this childlike faith, this is what I imagine. Yes, they've been in the world. Yes, they have tasted the things of the world, but they've also seen the work of God and they believe that what he has done once, he can do again. And this is the important part. If God has done something once, can he do it again? And when you see something like manna that happens every single day, you would think you would know that. That if God has done something once, can he do it again? And yet the place that we find ourselves as believers is stuck in the wilderness. And every day we're receiving mercy from God. Every day we're receiving the manna from heaven. But that's not our focus. Our focus is still our complaint and our heart is still struggling. And so this is, for me, was, is a very personal message because my own appetites, my own desires, my own fleshly things can come knocking back on my, on my heart's door saying, hey, what about this? And I have to say, no, I am pursuing Christ. He is my all in all. He is the great I am. He is the bread of life. He is the way in which I walk. And I have to remind myself and I come back to him. He is the merciful savior who has rescued me. Yes, he brought me miraculously out of Egypt. And it was not well for me in Egypt. It was not well for me in the world. I have to remind myself of that. When I was indulging in the works of the flesh, it was not well with me. That was not good. I was in so much hurt and pain and there were other problems connected with that. It was not well with me back then. And so that is the lie. The lie is it was, it was good for me back then. It was well for me, but it wasn't. And so God has brought us this far not to drop us, 
He doesn't want to leave us here. He wants to take us on into the promised land. He wants to take us to that place where we will never long for the things of Egypt again, never long for the things of the world again. But we have to keep walking. And if we can learn how to walk and, re- and be rejoicing in his mercy that he provides for us day by day, I think of a child. You know, can you imagine being a child and every morning there's manna from heaven on the ground and that's your job as you go out there with your little basket to pick this up? I mean, I can see the, the thrill of a child versus someone going out there, you know, I used to have beef steak and I used to have chili, uh, Philly cheese steaks, whatever. I, lots of beef is showing up in my, when I think about the, the, the flesh pots of Egypt, I think of a lot of kinds of beef evidently. Um, probably be disappointed, probably be like lamb and chicken or something, <clears throat> maybe some goat. But, but the difference is that the, the delight, to be able to delight in the provision, the daily provision of God, that is part of a childlike faith, to say, thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for this. I remember a number of years back, we were... Um, my family, this was before I was married, my family was going to meet for Christmas out in New Mexico at my brother's ranch, and they occasionally had snow, but not guaranteed. And so the, my nieces and nephews were praying for snow. They were praying that we'd have snow for Christmas. And so we all make it out there. The entire Graber family makes it out there, and we get there, and it starts to snow. And so by the next morning, there's several inches on the ground. So we're, we're all headed out into this one section to go look for a, a Christmas tree to decorate the house with while we're there. And while we're there, my, my nephew, Timothy, is like he's running around and he's like taking a bite of snow off of a leaf, you know, uh, there's little pine trees. He's taking a bite of snow off there. He's just going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He's running around thanking the Lord for the snow everywhere. And he's like, you know what? We can make a snowman or we could just eat it. He's so excited, but they had been praying for snow and then there it was. And I'm there and my dad was there too. And my dad, you know, he's, he saw enough snow in one winter back in 97 that he would be fine if he never saw snow again in his life. And so he's going, man, this stuff is back, you know? And he's not rejoicing in the snow, but Timothy is really rejoicing in the snow. And I, and I think of that picture in regards to this, is God gives us the mercies every day And if a childlike faith rejoices in the mercies today, is it by chance the same mercy we received yesterday? Well, yes, actually it is. Is it the same mercy we'll receive tomorrow? Well, yes, actually it is. But it is a good mercy. And it is something good that will actually help us and feed us. And so because of that newness, here's what, so this is the way I've applied it in my life. There were some things in my life that the appetites of the flesh were so strong that I had to literally say no to the world. It was not well with me there and I need to instead be pursuing Christ. And so whenever the appetite, the old appetite comes up and you might call it a temptation, you might call it an opportunity for sin, whatever, however your life works, but whenever the old appetite rears its head, you have to remind yourself and say, no, when I did that, when I was involved with those things, um, when I was able to freely indulge in whatever it is, you said it was not well with me. 
but I have been given something good and precious that the longer I consume of it, the more sweet it becomes. And, and not only, and, and so I've had to on purpose change my appetites, on purpose allow God to renew my mind and allow him so that I don't long for the things of the flesh. And this is potentially will be the walk for the rest of my life is that I will find areas in my life where my flesh will say, hey, what about this? Why don't you do that? And, and what I found too as a believer, because I've walked with the Lord um, from a fairly young age, there were some things that I never got to do. And so it is possible for my heart to feel as if I missed out that because before I got saved, I didn't go and sin first. And I think uh, if you guys remember the message I did with the candles here uh, a year or two ago, I, I forget exactly when that was, but the, and, and we talked about that, that the, the reality is that when I stand before Christ, I'm not going to stand there with regret because I didn't indulge in the world. I didn't get to taste all the things that sin had to offer me. It's going to be okay. In fact, I might regret the times that I did not actually engage in what Christ had for me and the times that I actually did spend indulging in the flesh. Those will be regrets. Right now, my flesh tries to tell me that I'm missing out. And this is, it's, it's very insidious the way the enemy works with the flesh because he works with us in our youth in one way. He works each stage of our life in a different way. And what I personally have gotten to see a little bit more of in a more realities, because I've heard about this, is that a lot of times in, somewhere along in your midlife, you can have a bit of a crisis because you're, you're realizing that there are some things that unless you do them now, you'll never get to do them. And so like some of the lies um, that men are told by the enemy, like one of the lies is simply like, if you're going to ever have an affair, you have to do it now because you're going to become too old and ugly to ever, that nobody else will want to have an affair with you ever again, which is a ridiculous lie, but it is one of the very real things that men have to deal with. And that's a lie that comes that has to be dealt with and say, well, why would I want to have an affair? Why would I want to ruin the good thing that God has given me through my wife and my children just because I'm, I'm getting too old to, to have an affair. Like, what is this? It's, it's a very ridiculous reasoning and logic, but it's very real and it's very consistent with the flesh pots of Egypt where the, the temptation comes and says, hey, if you don't do this, you might never get to do this. I don't ever want to do it, okay? I'm okay with what God has given me. I don't want the old things. And yet our flesh wants the old things. And so you will find your flesh popping up, either remembering something fondly or looking across and seeing someone else doing something and envying and wanting something that someone else has. Your flesh will do many things to try to keep the attention on you instead of on Jesus. And so what we're wanting to do, and the, the message that I want us to take away from just thinking about the daily provision of manna is this simple thing. Am I doubting the goodness of God? If God has given me this as a gift, do I doubt that it's good? And it goes to this, you know, one of the examples that 
um, in the Conquer series. I, I, some, I'm not sure if they mention it directly in the Conquer series or if it's in one of the other videos afterward, but this is the I illustration. Is most of us, if you give us a sun-ripened strawberry, we love that sun-ripened. It's a good strawberry. You eat it. It's delicious. But if you are eating a candy bar and you're halfway through a candy bar and then someone comes and says, hey, you want to eat this strawberry? You're like, yeah, it's kind of tart. Not, not really right now. I'd rather finish my candy bar. And the, the illustration of it was that there are some things in life, especially dealing with sexuality, where God has given you the good thing. But you can take that good thing and concentrate it in something like pornography where you take it and you concentrate it in an unhealthy way. So you think about the amount of sugar that's in a strawberry and then you put all of that together into this candy bar and you concentrate it all the way up here until the good thing that God made no longer seems sweet. Well, this is what it can do, the things of the world. So pornography can do that to a godly sexuality. And so we can become so used to the ungodly concentration of something that we don't even want or desire the godly thing, the one that God made. And this can happen to us where we lose our appetite for the things of God, which are perfectly good because we've been going after the things of the world, which are things taken out of context, things that we're not we shouldn't be having, or in too high of a concentration, or various other ways where the world says, hey, you should try this as well. You should try this. And so you see things like most every um, substance abuse is something that was created for one purpose being used in a different purpose, being too concentrated, being used for something that was not made for. And so God created all of these really good things, and the flesh wants to overdo something do it too much, and it destroys lives. And so in our minds, as we're walking through the wilderness toward the promised land, we must remember what God has done in the past, how he has rescued us from, this, from these things, but we must also keep in mind what he is going to do in the future, what he has promised to do. And then we must look at the daily provision, and if for some reason I'm not able to delight in the daily provision, that God is doing for me, I need to stop and treat that as a serious problem and say, Lord, I want to be able to fully appreciate the gifts that you've given me. And so for me, that means I want to fully be able to love and appreciate the fact that I have a wife, that I have children, that I have friends, that I have fellowship, that I have the word of God that I can read, that I have, there, there's so many good gifts that God has given me. And I don't want the temptations or the noises of the world to take my mind and my, take my attention off of this. I want to be able to fully appreciate what God has given me. I do not want to doubt the goodness of God. Say, I, you know what? I think you just brought me here to kill us, kill me. Like that's what they said. They said, you brought us out of Egypt just to kill us here. If he wanted to kill you, the Red Sea was a great place to do that. He didn't. He did not intend to kill you. And, and, and in your Christian faith, you might be tempted to say, you know, I think God just wants me to never have the good things. He never wants me to enjoy myself. And, you, and if you say those things, you're not understanding the goodness of God. God wants you to walk a life that is full of delight and full of praise and full of appreciation for the goodness of the things that he has made and what he has done. 
Let's pray. Father, you have been for ages past a God who desires good things for your children. He gives good gifts to your children. And you are to us the same. You have rescued us from the world. You have led us through the wilderness. You have done miraculous things in our lives. Lord, let us not forget those things. We, we, are, so, we are grateful for what you have done. And Father, we want to fix our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We want to keep in mind what it is you're doing, that we're part of a bigger picture. And Lord, when we walk through momentary discomfort, we ask that you would, Lord, help us to choose to walk worthy of you and to delight in you and to be grateful and thankful that your mercies truly are new every morning, like the manna in the wilderness. And you provide for us day by day the very things that we need the most. Lord, we love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.